welcome to a live edition of the Watchdog Podcast with me, Loki, here on Mint Press. As you know, we are going against the grain with investigative journalism, which day by day is becoming more and more challenging. For that reason, I would encourage you all to share this live stream, to like, to drop comments, but also, importantly, to donate to the latest campaign that Mint Press has for Behind the Headlines. We do cutting-edge documentaries, so I strongly, strongly encourage you to help us in making more of those cutting-edge documentaries in many hard-to-reach places and parts of the world. Today, we are joined by a really special guest, um, somebody who is going to enlighten us no end. Dr. Ramzi Baroud is an author, a syndicated columnist, and editor of the Palestine Chronicle. He is also a senior research fellow at Center for Islam and Global Affairs. He's the author of five books. His latest is These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons. Before we get into the conversation with Dr. Ramzi, we also have to note that today we have seen uh, Israeli occupation forces raid Al-Aqsa as they regularly do and over 30 Palestinians have been reported as having injuries from tear gas and rubber bullets shot at them. We know that the rubber bullets are very likely to be made by Israel Military Industries, IMI, which is a subsidiary of Israel's largest arms company, Elbit Systems, which has still nine sites in this country. As we know, Palestine Action successfully in coordination and uh, in uh, tandem with the local community in Oldham, were able to shut down one Elbit Systems factory in this country over the last year and also force Elbit to sell one of their subsidiaries here. We've seen protests across the world today against what Israel is doing in Al-Aqsa, from uh, people in Bangladesh to Pakistan to even in this country here. We have seen people express their unhappiness with what Israel has done. Now, to start with, um, I would like to just play a clip of an interview which Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett gave to CNN within the last 48 hours. If we could get some of that footage up in which he accuses the host, Christian Amanpour, of being a liar. Let's have a listen to this clip. Let me now, let me now quote your own, your own Israeli security people. Again, the context. The West Bank has been occupied since 1967. Settlers are allowed to to, to be there. It is a minority, I know that, but they're there and they are violent, this minority, and is generally deemed illegal by the rest of the world, the settlers in occupied territory. But that's a background to what I'm going to quote to you. Major General Yehuda Fuchs, who's the commander of your Israeli troops in the West Bank, is he not? Major General Yehuda Fuchs. He said in an interview with the New York Times, um, that he was concerned about what he called settler terrorism and was exerting a lot of effort to avoid it. He said his job is to make sure both Israelis and Palestinians are safe. So if he says that, what is your response to that? No, what you've been projecting is blatantly false. Uh, the, why do the you say that? Overwhelming majority. I'll tell you why I say it, because it's a... a Lie, simply a lie. No, sir, you can't. You cannot say that to me. Let, let me you finish. cannot tell me I'm uh, lying, Christiane, Mr. I, Mr. I Prime Minister. I well, said well, a minority of extremists. And... That's what I said. That's uh, what well, I it's said. A tiny minority. That's what I said. A tiny minority, and I, I object the uh, symmetry that uh, you're trying to create here, because out of There's half no a million, symmetry. I'm talking about uh, good your Israelis, own generals. decent. De could I could I finish the sentence, yes. uh, Christian? Out of half a million Israelis that are decent and law-abiding Israelis living in Judea and Samaria, there's several hundred, perhaps even less, 
uh, uh, who uh, apply violence from time to time. But who's getting murdered? We're seeing Palestinians murder Israelis. We're not seeing Israelis murdering Palestinians. And, and that's why there's no symmetry here. And I also object, these are not occupied territories. They're territories in dispute. And we have claimed to our own uh, uh, place as well as them. I get it. No one's going anywhere. We have to figure out how to live together. That's my job, to provide security for Israelis, uh, dignity for Palestinians. I'm working on that very hard, and we're succeeding. The problem is that the Palestinian leadership is is totally corrupt, incompetent. So we have to do the job because there, there's no one to work with on the other side. And we have to uh, take care. And indeed, we're adding jobs, better jobs. But at the end of the day, we don't need to uh, give my a platform. utmost okay. responsibility is that's, to provide security that's to the Israeli. If we can stop that. Thank you very much. So there's a lot to pick apart in what he just said. One of the things that stuck out to me is he mentioned the half a million settlers in the West Bank as good law-abiding people. Now, the question is, if in the UN Charter, Charter Article 2, it states it's illegal under international law to acquire land by force, if, according to the Fourth Geneva Conventions, Article 49, Paragraph 6, it states it is illegal to colonize occupied land or transfer non-indigenous population to that land, if those people that he's talking about are also armed by the Israeli state, they have control of over 80% of the water in the West Bank, if those people also participate within Israeli elections, in what sense can this be described as a law-abiding population? I mean, also we have him saying clearly uh, to Christiane Amanpour, you are a liar. Israelis aren't killing Palestinians and the West Bank is not occupied. Well, according to um, the Euromed monitor in Geneva, five times more Palestinians have been killed in this period of 2022 than were killed by the Israelis in this period of 2021. It's quite clear that Israelis are killing Palestinians. Um, among them, the uh, 47-year-old widow who was unarmed and was partially blind in uh, Bethlehem, who was killed by an Israeli soldier. In addition to that, when speaking of killing Arabs, we have to remember that Naftali Bennett in 2013 exclaimed with enthusiasm in a cabinet meeting that he's killed lots of Arabs in his life, and there's no problem with that. We, of course, know that 26 years ago, he was the commander of the unit that has significant responsibility for the Qana massacre in which 106 people were killed in south of Lebanon. That is one of 64 massacres that Israel has carried out in Lebanon since 1948. Now, um, it would be great to hear from Dr. Ramzi um, what his reaction is to that interview of Israeli Prime Minister um, Naftali Bennett. Uh, well, thanks for that, uh, Loki. It's really quite frustrating uh, listening to uh, uh, to Bennett, but it's honestly quite frustrating listening to any Israeli official or representative of the Israeli government uh, addressing mainstream media and kind of taking advantage of the prevailing ignorance uh, that uh, exists and dominates uh, mainstream media and therefore mainstream society as a result. Uh, of um, uh, the Israeli propaganda and the fact that only Israelis or mostly Israelis have this unhindered access to mainstream media. So here we are having to contend with Bennett's own lies and having to prove that Amanpour was right. And therefore, we kind of, again, we find ourselves engaging in the conversation from an Israeli point of view. What I mean by that is that Bennett's kind of sets the standards. Uh, he, you know, whatever fabrication lies, complete uh, uh, nonsense is just being, you know, uh, communicated uh, whether via CNN or Fox or New York Times. And here we are constantly trying to dissect and deconstruct his own lies and so forth. Um, the fact is Bennett himself 
is a liar. And the fact that, um, I mean, he speaks about Palestinian dignity and, and yet uh, a few years ago, he would take pride in killing many uh, Arabs and having no problem with that. Where is the dignity of killing people and having no problem with that? Where is the dignity uh, in stealing Palestinian land and annexing uh, their territories and, and depriving them uh, from uh, uh, from basic medications or access to cancer medicine, access to hospitals, access to to um, food, as is happening right now, access to their schools and 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 their homes and their livelihoods. Where is the dignity of, in that? If this is indeed Israel's definition of Palestinian dignity, well, maybe then the term dignity itself has to be redefined. Uh, but one little you know, uh, issue I also have with Amanpour's claim about the minority, a very small minority of extremists. What is that in reference to? Um, if you check out the latest public opinion polls coming from Israel, the majority of Israelis are now identified as right-wing. And we know in Israel, if you are right-wing, you are definitely a far-right and ultra-nationalist. Um, you know, because as we all know that in Israel, right, left, center, is, is entirely different political classifications compared to the rest of the world. And a very small margin of about 7% of Israelis identify as leftists. Uh, and and, and even, even at that, even that 7% leftist, many of them support the settlements and, and, and support their military and, and so forth and so on. So I don't, I don't see it. I don't see where is the uh, the very small minority, if half of the Likud party, the ruling party or the main party in Bennett's coalition is, is in fact, uh, uh, half of its members support the Temple Mount movement, which wants to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque and Al-Haram al-Sharif to rebuild the, uh, the, the supposed temple uh, that is, you know, somehow built underneath. Um, so these are not indications of a, a very small minority. We are talking about majority of Israeli society that supports this kind of uh, right-wing, fascist, violent behavior targeting Palestinians uh, in every aspect of their lives, including as of late, well, always, but particularly as of late in their holy places, whether Muslim or Christians in East Jerusalem. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Ramzi, originally you are from Khayyam and Nasairat um, in Gaza, which in the last few days has been bombed by Israel. If you could just give us a breakdown of how things are there now and how, whether it's family or loved ones or people you're in contact with, how are they now? Uh, right. So, you know, kind of turning on the news and or, or reading the news and finding out that Nusayrat refugee camp uh, is being bombarded uh, by Israel is just um, as sad as this may sound is is routine news. Uh, it's uh, it's a very important camp as far as the Palestinian resistance uh, is concerned. In fact, many of the resistance movements in, in, in Palestine and in Gaza in particular throughout the years were incepted and created in, in the Nusayrat refugee camp. I was born and raised there. Uh, I threw my first rock at the Israeli, uh, the Israeli occupation army uh, 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 as they raided our high school, Khaled ibn al-Walid school in Nusayrat when I was living in that refugee camp. My uh, Many family members are buried there. Many family members are still living there. My house in the uh, Nusayrat was bombed several times. Uh, in 2014, it was damaged so severely it has to be it had to be rebuilt uh, entirely. Um, our neighbor's house uh, was bombed, and, and and two of his children were killed in in the recent war. Uh, so this is kind of the reality of Nusayrat. It's it's um, it's a place that I uh, spoke about at length. Uh, in my book, my father was a freedom fighter. Gaza's untold story. It's actually Nusayrat kind of represented the, the 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 core of the story and the core of the resistance uh, that is ongoing in uh, in Nusayrat. But of course, 
as always the case after the news uh, conveyed that Nusayrat was under attack, I immediately call family, friends, and, and check on everyone. And there's always, you know, um, it's a small place, relatively very small, very crowded place, and everybody knows everybody. So the chances of you not knowing who is killed or who is injured or what house was destroyed, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very minimal. You know, quite often we know, uh, you know, everybody in the camp, and therefore it's always a tragedy, no matter uh, what targets did the Israeli missiles uh, hit. Luckily, in the latest attack in the northern part of Nusayrat, uh, there hasn't been any, any uh, reported uh, injured, uh, but there was massive destruction in that part of Nusayrat. But as always, we rebuild uh, money donated by ordinary poor people, refugees, somehow we managed to rebuild uh, regardless of the degree of destruction. In fact, when I was in Gaza the last time, I discovered that because Israel does not allow cement to Gaza, what people do, they actually take the destroyed buildings and reprocess the debris and recreate the cement and rebuild the houses that were destroyed. That's the kind of uh, innovation but resilience of the people of Nasirat, of Gaza, of Palestine as a whole. Thank you for that testimony, Ramzi. Um, I guess also to add into this question, you have recently published an article on Palestine Chronicle looking at this issue of food insecurity um, within the Palestinian territories, within Palestine, but within Gaza also. Um, could you just uh, break down for us this, uh, you know, in many ways, it's the consequences and the domino effect of what's happening in Ukraine, but there's also other factors at play. Could you just break that down? For Absolutely. Us? You know, it, it's the, the food insecurity, like many other collective crises in Gaza is similar to, um, for example, when we talk about the siege in Gaza, we're always using relative terms. Uh, when we say the siege in Gaza started in 2006-7, when Hamas was elected, you know, uh, by majority of Palestinians, and Israel imposes collective punishment on Palestine, it's always relative because Gaza has been under an Israeli siege prior to the elections, and even prior to that, it, Gaza has been under an effective Israeli siege since the Israeli occupation uh, of Gaza and the rest of Palestine in 1967. Uh, but we are forced to kind of redefine these horrific situations because we find ourselves always in a more horrific situation. So we kind of neglect that the fact that Gaza has been under siege and we talk about a different siege that started in 2007. The same thing with the food insecurity. Uh, Palestine, according to Oxfam, has the facilities to, uh, um, to store three uh, weeks of, of wheat. Uh, at a time. Um, Israel doesn't allow for that kind of, of, of facilities. Uh, even Palestinian attempts at uh, saving specific kind of seeds to create their own uh, uh, wheat farms and that sort of thing, it's quite often destroyed or hindered by Israel in one way or the other. Gaza, uh, in particular, is we all know it's, it's under a hermetic siege and blockade for many years. And much of the agricultural land, we know that Gaza is a very, very small piece of land to begin with. We're looking at one of the most crowded places on earth, 365 square kilometers, about 181 square miles for 2 million people, and the number keeps increasing. So there's very little stretches of agricultural land or arable land in Gaza. But most of the, these lands are actually located at the fence, separating BC and Gaza from Israel, and, and that, that area is a no-go territory for Palestinians. It's, it's, they call it the death zone. Many farmers have been shot and killed by the Israeli snipers stationed around that land. So even that tiny little possibility of Palestinians producing their own food in Gaza is prohibited by Israel, whether directly or indirectly. Well, how about the water? You need water to survive. Well, according to Oxfam and according to the World Bank and according to the United Nations, Anywhere between 97 to 99% of Gaza water is not drinkable. So we're not only talking about 
about food here. We are talking about the very existential issue or existential threat posed by the lack of water because Israel uh, either bombs the energy uh, uh, electric grids in Gaza or uh, does not allow for Palestinians to develop any sorts of machinery to process uh, seawater and that sort of thing. So we are looking here at a situation back to the to the point of Palestinian dignity, where Palestinians are literally drinking polluted seawater, and this is the you know the outcome of this numerous diseases that goes unreported. Many children die from unnecessary diseases like diarrhea, for example. Uh, and, and of course, we know that Gaza hospitals is not, are not equipped for this kind of crisis. Uh, the same situation in the West Bank. Most of the water that is produced in the West Bank or the, the aquifers of the West Bank are actually stolen. I mean, here's the thing, stolen by Israel, by the Israeli water uh, company and, and sold back to Palestinians at exorbitant prices, especially in the northern part of the West Bank, Qalqilia, Jenin and these areas. So in the summer, although Palestine has plenty of water in the West Bank, particularly, third of that water is taken by Israel uh, and used by Israelis illegally in violation of the Geneva Conventions and international law. And a lot of that water is processed by Israel and sold back to the Palestinians. Uh, so now the Oxfam's report saying that Israel, the Palestinians have only three weeks to run out of wheat. That was about 10 days ago. So the time is ticking, and there are no alternatives to that sort of thing. Now, the, the irony in all of this, that it's Israel, this rich country that steals the resources of others, constantly speaks about its own existential threat, as if the Palestinians, who are lacking water and wheat and food of any kind, and ha- lack the freedom to travel, the freedom to have a normal, dignified life, and have no basic human rights, they are the ones who are supposedly imposing an existential threat on Israel. And sadly, CNN and Fox and others give them the platform to communicate these kind of lies and deceptions and, 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 and false ideas, while Palestinians are the ones who are depicted to be the wrongdoers, the aggressors, the ones who are you know, uh, you know, threatening Israel of complete annihilation. This is the kind of very twisted Orwellian world that we live in. Uh, and it's, it's a world that Israel has manufactured and, and, and constructed over the years. And we are constantly trying to, you know, kind of fight back or to, you know, trying to humanize ourselves in, in any way possible. But here again, while Israel has plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of weaponries, Palestinians lack all of these things. Absolutely. It's a disfiguring of the truth on an industrial scale, no doubt. Um, What would you say is the significance of these consecutive raids into Al-Aqsa and other places of worship in Palestine? Uh, Well, we know that Bennett himself is a settler. I mean, this is a man who was brought in by the settlers uh, to become eventually the prime minister uh, of Israel, his uh, uh, his his uh, uh, basically uh, uh, attempt at provoking uh, uh, this kind of violence in Jerusalem by unleashing the hordes of settlers against the Palestinians, whether in Jerusalem or in other parts of the West Bank, it's his way of saying, "I am paying back." For, for allowing me to be your prime minister. And he knows very well that his coalition more or less is shaky and it doesn't have a very long lifespan. And as a result, uh, he is constantly trying to create these pro- provocations. Of course, for him, these are calculated provocations, meaning that he doesn't want to push to the point of an all-out war, yet enough to give the settlers the kind of space so that they would always see him as a leader, as a, as a person who has their interests at heart. Now, the thing about all of this is Bennett is one strong believer in the expansion of the illegal Jewish settlements. He is a very strong advocate of, of um, ensuring that, this, that the, the political discourse of settlers remain at the heart 
of Israeli policy, whether at home or abroad. So he is kind of, I mean, he was fighting against uh, Amanpour's comment about the the, 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 ex- the the minority of extremists. I think he felt offended himself because he sees himself as an ambassador of those extremists. Um, what's happening in Al-Aqsa in particular right now is more dangerous than any other time in the past. There are There is a new language that's coming with this kind of violence. We know about the violence. We know about hundreds of Palestinians who have been wounded. We know about hundreds of Palestinians who have been arrested. We know about journalists who have been targeted. We know about all of this. But what we haven't paid much attention to is the kind of language that is coming from Israeli society, Israeli media, and Israeli government. They are talking about kind of a long-term arrangement to prevent this sort of thing. Now, we know that this kind of arrangement happened in the, in the past at Al-Ibrahimi Mosque in Al-Khalil, Hebron, right? In 1994, when an, Israel, when an American Jewish-Israeli extremist gunned down 29 Palestinians, at the Palestinian mosque in, in Al-Khalil, uh, and then followed by about 25 Palestinians killed by the Israeli army. After that, the Israeli government decided to partition the Ibrahimi mosque, giving the larger part of it to the settlers and leaving the smaller part of it to Palestinian worshippers. And quite often, even that small part is denied uh, on Palestinian worshippers who are not allowed to visit and pray during certain times that are considered holy for the Israeli Jews. Now, there's a lot of fear among Palestinians, including the Palestinian Authority. I'm not a big fan, but it's the truth. They are talking about the Israel's attempt at partitioning and dividing Al-Aqsa and the uh, Haram al-Sharif compound as a whole in terms of time and space, meaning, uh, meaning creating perhaps specific areas for Jews only and and specific times for Jews to visit while Palestinian Muslims are denied access to Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, the Ibrahimi Mosque is a very, very holy place for Palestinians, but nothing gets even close to the importance of Al-Aqsa Mosque and Haram al-Sharif to Palestinians and to Muslims all over the world. Uh, We know that the Second Intifada, for example, in 2000, started because of the Sharon's provocations at Al-Aqsa Mosque. So Israel is indeed playing with fire here. Bennett is trying to appease his settlers, but at the expense of the possibility of a major rebellion, similar to the one that happened in May of last year. And we know that Palestinians are ready mentally to take on that challenge. They are fed up with the occupation. They are fed up with apartheid. They are ready to resist. There is a new generation of Palestinians who are ready to take the helm on this. So Israel and Benet, they would have to be very, very careful before continuing this kind of violence and provocations and the targeting of innocent worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Absolutely. And upon the mention of the Palestinian unity intifada, as some have called it Ma'arakat Saif al-Quds as others have called it um, last year you know what you saw was the very comprehensive mobilization of Palestinian society you saw a mobilization of many people in the diaspora also and we have to remember that that process hurt Israel economically you know the shekel fell and um it was in a situation from merely one day of almost 65,000 Palestinian construction workers going on strike within the Green Line led to in one day $40 million uh, worth of loss. And, you know, the vice president of the Builders Association said, we cannot build without them. You also, at the same time, on that one day, saw a 1,000 Palestinian bus drivers go on strike, which led to over 300 journeys being cancelled. You know, it got so desperate um, for the apartheid state that the mayor of Lid at one point called for the mobilization of the Israeli occupying forces, the Israeli military in the city. But it was not able to do that due to the overextension of the forces um, fighting against Gaza. You know, you also have the new 
potential game changer of the resistance in Gaza launching Russian-made 9K-32 Strela surface-to-air missiles at um, occupation fighter jets. You know, it's especially vulnerable um, for drones and helicopters. And, you know, it could be just a matter of time before one of those are shot down. We've also seen in recent months the head of Israel's external intelligence services, um, Mossad, David Bernier, having his phone hacked and some of those details of his wages and his taxes being leaked. You also saw the hacking of the Ministry of Interior and other ministries and the pulling down of key Israeli government websites. Um, You know, we have to remember that despite the endless propaganda and the attempt to disfigure the image of Palestinian resistance, you know, Palestinian resistance to Zionism and ethnic cleansing from the 1880s to this day is the longest continuous anti-colonial struggle in recorded history. You know, it represents a universal struggle for justice. And while, you know, the US government, which ostensibly represents 331 million people, the UK government, which ostensibly represents 66 million people, the Israeli government, which supposedly represents 9 million people, and the EU which is believed to represent 446 million people, they prescribe Palestinian resistance groups as terrorist organizations. We have to also remember that that is only governments representing approximately 861 million people. The vast majority of the world are represented by governments who do not define Palestinian resistance in the same way. You know, for example, Switzerland is 8.5 million people and Switzerland does not prescribe Palestinian resistance. Pakistan, this government ostensibly represents 223 million people. Turkey represents 82 million people. Chinese government uh, ostensibly represents 1.4 billion people. The Russian government supposedly represents uh, 144 million people. Iran represents 82 million people. Venezuelan government, 28 million people. So here we see well over a billion people and the vast majority of humanity not actually agreeing with this Israeli set agenda that Palestinian resistance is in any way you know, um, terrorism. You, of course, have several UN General Assembly resolutions from UN Resolution 3246 and others which assert the right of the Palestinians to liberate themselves from foreign occupation through armed struggle. One other key point of uh, what happened in uh, May 2021 is important to remember that the IDF is a reserve army, meaning that when it, it it extends itself in the way that it did, it has to take people out of the existing economy, which, you know, the ungovernability of Palestinians basically contributed to that economic challenge. You know, we have to remember that the Palestinians within the Green Line, um, that really, you know, from the figures in the 90s, I'm not sure of any recent figures, the infant uh, mortality is double for those Palestinians as it is for Jewish citizens of Israel. There's really a plurality of alienations that Palestinians um, within the Green Line suffer from. You know, according to Adala, there's over 50 laws within the the Israeli state that imposes inequality between Palestinians and Jewish citizens of Israel. We also know that generally the wages of Jewish workers in Israel are 35% higher than Palestinian workers. Um, Also, 50% of Palestinians in uh, 48 live below the poverty line. We know that 47% of the pharmacists in the Israeli state are Palestinians also. So there's actually major points of vulnerability within the Israeli idea, which say that when things are pushed to the brink, 
as they were last year and as they are inevitably going to be pushed again, we have, in a way, a new pattern of action which engages not only the resistance stopping flights into Ben Gurion um, Airport, which deeply affects the economy, in a way, restrictions are being put on what Israel can and can't do because of popular resistance, armed resistance, and other forms of resistance. For instance, when we look back at Operation Castled or the massacre in 2014, we saw over 2,300 people killed in Gaza. You know, the the, the horrific scenes of Shaja'iya. We did not see that in 2021 because, you know, some would analyze it to say that peak Israel, in terms of its ability to uh, uh, apply violence to Palestinians, is is limited in a way that it wasn't before. Um, what do you think of that, Dr. Ramzi? And also, uh, specifically on the issue of Palestinians within 48, how is their role developing? I think the Palestinians of 48 perhaps is the most important new factor that has been added to this equation in many years. Uh, Traditionally, the way things have been done is that um, Gaza is under siege, protracted siege over the years. Uh, The West Bank is divided between areas A, B, and C. Uh, Palestinians are allowed to so-called govern themselves as long as they behave themselves within area A. Uh, the rest is more or less under total Israeli dominance and control. And, you know, um, East Jerusalem is left for, for the settlers and the Temple Mount movement and the, you know, stealing it one house at a time, one dunum at a time. And the Israeli settlements are flourishing and growing. And, and um, there is no problem here. At, in fact, at the foreign policy stage, Israel has expanded its outreach to, sadly, many African countries, but many other countries around the world. And the idea of the normalized Israel is merely challenged by the growing BDS movement, significant, but certainly not enough that can actually, uh, uh, you know, put enough challenge and pressure on Israel that it would, uh, uh, you know, destroy its plans of, of moving forward as any other normal uh, country and and of course we you know we know about the normalization with the Arabs and so forth. Now one argument that I have made throughout the years that the most important factor in that that determines whether Israel can succeed or fail in its plans is not whether the United States will have a change of heart, whether the Europeans will have a moral conscience and they will awaken to the devastation happening in Palestine. No, none of that. It is rather the resistance and the unity of the Palestinians themselves. Historically, it's true in Palestine, and it's true in any anti-colonization and national liberation movement, especially in the global south in the last 100 years. That norm, that, that idea has never really changed, and that model remains as true in Palestine as it was anywhere else in the world. Now, what we saw in May that was different Uh, than any other uh, 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 year, especially since the Oslo Accords in 1993, is that uh, Palestinians rose around a single slogan. The divisions that have kind of divided us into West Bank, Gaza, Hamas, Fatah, you know know that people in Jerusalem have a special status. They are residents, but they are not citizens. But on the other hand, they are not like the West Bankers. And of course, we were told, forget about the Palestinians of 48. They are not relevant anymore. They are, they are Israelis now. And that's a whole different political dynamics, not related at all to the Palestinian struggle in the occupied territories. Well, guess what? None of this was true. And it turned out that there is still a strong, powerful Palestinian nation that defines itself as such. Um, there is a new generation that never saw itself as part of that division, the, if I am living in area A, I don't, maybe technically I'm in area A, but I'm still a Palestinian. And if I'm under siege in Gaza, I'm still a Palestinian. And, and, and all of these divisions ended up being completely irrelevant. But what is more important than the Palestinians of 48, because indeed for many years, uh, they have been kind of marginalized, sidelined, and many of them kind of got engaged in some sort of politics uh, within the Israeli Knesset, 
there was always that hope that maybe we can negotiate a better deal. Certainly, we will not be equal citizens as Israeli Jews, but we don't want to suffer the fate of Palestinians in the West Bank. Well, it turned out that also that was not true. And there was a collective consciousness within that community in, in Palestine 48 that actually allowed them, allowed uh, that generation, this new generation, to see itself as part or parcel of a larger collective Palestinian struggle, whether in the West Bank or in Gaza. And because of the significance of that, of, of that population, as far as the Israeli economy is concerned, their rebellion had a great deal of consequences as far as the Israeli economy is concerned. Now, let's not forget that the, the rockets fired by, uh, by Palestinians in response, in retaliation to the Israeli war and massacres in Gaza, yeah, a lot of people make these references. These are homemade rockets. They are, you know, as Mahmoud Abbas described it, frivolous, frivolous resistance, he said. It makes no difference. It kills nobody. But that's not the point. The point that it actually did shut down the entire sector, economic sector in southern Israel up to Tel Aviv and Ben Gurion Airport. So the tourists who are constantly streaming in onto Israel, they were no longer uh, able to come and visit the country. So you're talking about billions of dollars of losses in agriculture and tourism. But even the Palestinians in the West Bank who are forced to import Israeli products, uh, they have no other alternatives. They are under occupation. So they are contributing billions of dollars per month to the Israeli economy. Well, guess what? That also created a disruption in the, in the supply chain, if you will. And Israel suffered billions of dollars of losses. Now, yes, Israel receives a lot of money, 3.8 billion plus uh, from the United States in terms of military equipments and that sort of thing. Uh, but that is no longer enough to compensate it for the massive losses it incurs whenever it decides to go and, and do this political and military gamble and attack Gaza. In other words, this sort of thing that let's go and, you know, uh, what, what Israeli military uh, experts call mowing the, the grass. Let's go and mow the grass in Gaza. Let's go and, 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 and destroy the terrorist infrastructure, so-called. This is not, uh, this is not uh, a game anymore. It's no longer this, this simple routine and, and, and military exercise that they do at the expense of, of Palestinian civilians. Now, if, if Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem is under attack, Gaza responds. If Gaza is under attack, Palestinians in Haifa and Yafa and Nasra rise up in rebellion. If they are under attack, Al-Quds stands in solidarity with them and the rest of the West Bank. So we are becoming beginning to see this a reanimation of a Palestine that we haven't seen since Oslo. Definitely haven't seen since Oslo. We're looking at nearly four decades now, we know a generation is about 26 years. So you're looking at a generation and a half of Palestinians who haven't experienced anything like this. And this is the new factor that is so extremely worrying to Israel. They are, they are no longer able to go and isolate a, a sector or a section of the West Bank like Jenin, carry out a massacre and get away with it, or go to war on Gaza and get away with it. No, that is no longer valid as far as Palestinians are concerned any attack on any Palestinian anywhere within historic Palestine is an attack on all Palestinians. And that's the beautiful element of this story, is that this, this rise and resurrection of this new Palestinian identity as articulated by this new generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Unfortunately, to look at some of the regional players and the way in which their collaboration and their normalization with the Zionist colonization of Palestine has become more prominent in recent times. I mean, also, I think one of the neglected aspects of the history, especially when you look at Israel and Morocco, was that in 1963, you had the head of internal security in Morocco make a deal with Mir Amit to allow Israeli intelligence to train Moroccan security services. I mean, also we have, there's ample documentation that King Hassan of Morocco 
in uh, 1967, War the Naksa was working with the Israelis secretly recording meetings with Arab leaders in the run-up to the 67 um, war. And basically, um, it's claimed by the Israelis, who often um, boast um, to an unrealistic degree, really, to try and uh, cultivate this mythology of invincibility, um, that his uh, work in his secret recording was vital to their victory and success in occupying the West Bank in Gaza in 67. Um, however, I think it would be great if we could have a little bit of the background to this period of normalization that we've seen, and also uh, perhaps to get into some of the resistance against this normalization in each of these countries, because you're seeing it, whether it's Morocco, whether it's Bahrain, whether it's you know the Emirates to a far lesser degree, you are seeing you are seeing mobilizations of, again, the younger generations within the society refusing this slap in the face to uh, all people of the region. You know, I, I think it's important to note here that when we talk about Arab normalization, we are talking about the normalization that is conducted by corrupt, undemocratic uh, Arab countries, sheikdoms, and, and, and governments that have no legitimacy whatsoever with Israel, and by extension, trying to kind of win a little bit of political capital with Washington. That's what it's really all about. Uh, Palestine remains the central issue of the Arabs. And I was actually myself, you know, surprised that when um, about two, three years ago, right kind of at the heights of all of this normalization talks, uh, a, a, a pure opinion poll came out that said majority of Arab societies throughout the Middle East believe that Israel is the main threat to the Arab nation. Now, this is really interesting because it also included majority of Saudis. We are talking about 85%. We are talking about 79%, I think, in the United Arab Emirates. I might be off a couple of numbers here and there, but it's more or less the same. So these very societies that either normalize or there's been some talk about whether they will normalize. And yet, despite of the, of the uh, situation, the upheaval in the, in the Middle East in recent years, despite of the, all the inner fighting the proxy wars, despite of all of this, they still believe that Palestine is the most important issue and that Israel is the greatest threat. So we're not talking about Arab normalization as Arab people and Arab nations. But the way I see it is that we are all in the same same tunnel on the same uh, uh, area here, meaning that uh, whether in you know those in, in Arab countries that are living under dictatorship and they have no voice and no representation whatsoever, they are as oppressed in their own different context as Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank are oppressed. In fact, I might be exaggerating or appear to be exaggerating a little bit here when I say that actually Palestinians in, in occupied Palestinians at times seem to have greater freedom to express themselves politically, especially in Gaza if compared to many Arab people living in, in Arab countries that have normalized with Israel. The other thing I want to say is that uh, when we talk about normalization, I think we have to distinguish uh, between official normalization as in official diplomatic treaties signed with Israel and non-official or unofficial normalization that has been taking uh, place for years. Uh, uh, and that includes the countries that normalized but also some of the countries that haven't normalized. We have seen Israeli sports teams, for example, arriving in various Arab countries uh, and, and, and participating and being welcomed. We have seen Israeli officials visiting, whether on official visits or non-official visits. Um, and we have known about this for years and years. So it's really for, for Palestinians, it wasn't the shock of the normalization itself is the fact that they had the audacity, these governments, and they had the goals to actually normalize openly and officially and celebrate Israel and the Israeli achievements in military and science and politics and all of this, while their own brethren are being brutalized and being killed and destroyed and bombed uh, in, in various parts of Palestine. It, it stung in a different way. We knew that the Arabs had been normalizing for many, many years, 
but kind of the fact that they were doing it secretly gave us a little bit of space to say, well, they don't have the guts to do it because their people would not allow that to happen. Well, different political circumstances, the Arab people are under particularly great you know, uh, deal of oppression right now because of what's happening in various Arab countries. There was a huge opportunity for that, the shame of normalization to happen openly and publicly. But there's one other thing I want to say about this, that, that there's also an act of desperation involved here. We know that some Arab countries are constantly seeking a defender. You know, they are afraid of, uh, at one point they sought uh, uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, protection against Iran. Eventually they needed American protection against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Then they needed, uh, and now because the Americans are withdrawing from the region, they, they are becoming far less interested in the Middle East uh, in comparison to the, the, the Indo-Pacific region. Um, the, the Arabs, these weak Arab countries, they know that they need a protector. And sadly, the protector is against Iran, another majority Muslim country that actually, if they think about it in an in intelligent way and just take a minute to calculate things, they will realize that they would have a much greater chance of finding common ground with Iran than they would have with Israel in the long term. So now it's an act of desperation on behalf of these weak Arab countries in order for them to get Israel, to line up Israel, to supposedly protect them from some imaginary Iranian threat. And on the other hand, the, um, the Israel wanted to create an alternative regional uh, alliance, knowing that the Americans are not going to be there for a long time, as, as indeed has been the case since 2012, when Obama declared so-called pivot to Asia and the retreat from the Middle East. And we have seen that expressing itself in many ways, in Libya, in Syria, and all of this, where the Americans do not want to be at the forefront of these fights anymore, because they know, because the Iraqi resistance uh, has taught them a very, very painful lesson that your firepower in the face of people's power is really quite, you know, minuscule and largely irrelevant. So I think this, this not only as an act of normalization, but also an act of desperation. And I really don't think it's going to serve neither Israel nor these normalizing Arabs in the long run and will eventually be the people who are going to say the, 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 the final word regarding all of this. Yes, absolutely. And the, the history of Israel's attempts to flirt with and subjugate the Iraqi political classes. An interesting one, of course, Nurul Masalha, in his wonderful book, The Expulsion of the Palestinians, um, details some of the efforts with Tawfiq al-Suwaidi, originally in the 30s, Iraqi prime minister, to um, persuade him of the population exchange plan, whereby Palestinians would be taken and put in Iraq, and Iraqi Jews would be put in uh, Palestine. Later on, though, in the 50s, when he was prime minister, he was responsible, responsible for passing the Denaturalization Act, which allowed the, um, the ability for Iraqi Jews to give up their Iraqi citizenship and become Israelis. There's a, a brilliant documentary about it called Ensa Baghdad, which uh, details some of those experiences. When Abbas Shiblaq has a book called The Law of Zion, in which he traces the extent of this migration from Iraq to Palestine in 1951, um, at the beginning of when the denaturalization law was put in place, in the first few months, there was very, very little. However, what followed those months was the placing of bombs at uh, places of um, uh, worship for I Iraqi Jews. Now, Abbas Shiblaq in the book puts forth that both the US embassy, the British embassy, and the Iraqi government were all clear that these bombs were put there by Israeli intelligence in 1951. And so then what happened was the numbers increased dramatically, exponentially, of Iraqi Jews who left. You had uh, also, as the testimonies in Ensa Baghdad show, 
the Israelis spraying the Iraqis with DDT when they arrived, putting them in camps and them later protesting um, for housing and, you know, then becoming a part of uh, the Israeli state. But the interesting in the more contemporary context was certainly one of the objectives of the occupation in 2003 was creating a pro-Israeli Iraqi political elite. Now, for all of the corruption, for all of the shortcomings of the Iraqi political elite, one thing that was not possible to establish, and there were a few Iraqi politicians who made overtures and who attempted to normalize this sort of uh, um, friendly relationship with Israel, uh, Mithal al-Lusi, for example, others, they were not able to. They were not able to. And even recently, you saw the conference in Erbil with 300 uh, Iraqi political figures um, asserting that they wanted to join the Abraham Accords. Now, this was led by Joseph Broad, who is um, uh, president of the Center for Peace Communications um, at the Washington Institute. He is a senior fellow at the Middle East Program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and also a senior fellow at Al-Masbar Center um, for Studies and Research in Dubai. Now, he made a lot of his Iraqi origins, but this is someone who represents Israel's interests. He is using um, his presence in the UAE as a base through which, and his relations with um some in the Saudi um, elite, media elite, to cultivate this, uh, you know, essentially what they're attempting to do is what Naftali Bennett um, said in his previous interview, bottom-up anti-BDS, bottom-up normalization. So in this country also, there are several organizations that speak in the language of conflict resolution, and what they're essentially trying to do is access those harder to reach, quote unquote, political actors to try and um, over time convince them of the adults in the room political decision of normalizing with Israel. I think it's absolutely important, especially here in this country where it's slightly harder. And I imagine in the United States, it's also you have similar kind of programs through Stand With Us, through the ADL and others to have complete clarity about what these organizations are attempting to do. They try to obfuscate asymmetrical military equations and place them in the personal sphere that says, actually, you solve massive macro issues through micro interrelations. And, and 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 unfortunately, you know, you have, for example, Solutions Not Sides, a program in the British schooling system, which is run, uh, it was founded through One Voice. Um, it shares the office with One Voice. You know, One Voice is an organization who I've examined 50 of its employees and at least 23 of them our former Israeli intelligence or former Israeli military. It had four employees who simultaneously worked for the Israeli government. One voice, Daniel Lebetsky, who founded it, is very clear that this organization is an anti-BDS organization. We have to have a greater criticality within this country about the attempt to astroturf normalization and target particularly um, Muslim children and teenagers and young people and, and try to ingratiate Israel to them. Uh, Dr. Ramzi, it's been really beautiful having this conversation with you. I hope that we can continue and do this more often for sure. Um, Mint Press is always a home for you, I think I can say. Um, and so, yes, it would be great to do this again. Thank you to everyone that has been tuned in. I hope that you will support our Behind the Headlines um, fundraiser and also share this video. Thank you to all for tuning in.
Thank you very much, Joaquin.